I want to continue the series of talks that I've started on happiness tonight. And tonight I want to talk about the happiness of love. And I want to talk about it in two parts. The first part is talking about the happiness we can feel and experience in developing a benevolent mind, a caring relationship to others through the practice of metta. And the second part of the talk, I want to talk about the happiness and joy we can contact and experience when we practice metta to attain jhana or deep absorptions. And I want to talk about the different levels of absorption and experiences of happiness through metta, uh, through the development of metta. Metta is usually translated in, into English as loving kindness. And what that means for me is that metta is really a generous or a generative act from a mind that, are, that is appreciative from a mind that cares. And in that we should understand that metta or love is <clears throat> primarily an attitudinal relationship of open appreciation of others and events and things and not primarily a relationship to a specific person. So of these two characteristics of metta, I want to speak first <clears throat> about the appreciative consciousness, the appreciative mind, which essentially is being respectful of others for who they are, not for who we want them to be. And it really calls forth a caring, nurturing attitude towards others as we find them with appropriate sensitivity. This implies that we have some objectivity in the situation where we're really able to step out of our self-preoccupation self-centrism and really see the other objectively where we are not dependent on them to provide for our sense of worth nor are we in a relationship that exploits them in some way. It really requires that we um, in the colloquial expression got it together a little bit, where we really aren't uh, indulging in 
grandiose omnipotence, but rather in a very humble, objective, caring relationship to another. And that respect is only possible when we value another's inherent worth. When we genuinely appreciate their beauty of being. And to do that, I think we really need to know from our own experience what our qualities of humaneness are. What we experience as the um, most cherished qualities of being human. And seeing them in ourselves through insight and through reflection and honoring and appreciating that, those qualities in others, whether they're developed or not. Respect, valuing of others' humaneness, and being able to respond, being responsible, being able to perceive others' needs, and being able to respond to them. To the extent that we know ourselves, and we know our sources of unhappiness, discomfort, fear, stress, to the extent that we know that in ourselves, we can know that about others. And we can respond appropriately to relieve their suffering, to relieve their fear, to relieve their stress. So this appreciative consciousness, this responsibility of the appreciative mind really takes an active concern for the life and the growth of others. But metta or loving kindness is not just appreciating others. It's an act of giving, not receiving. And in the giving of love, in the giving of care and nurturing, in the giving of safety, in valuing others, we acknowledge our interconnectedness. where we see or understand the wisdom of overcoming our separate, isolated, me-mind mentality. And we really act on our interconnectedness, where we enter a joyful relationship or partnership with others, And to do that, we have to be awake. We have to be alive. We have to know who we are. We need to recognize our own autonomy 
our own integrity and our own strength. Often in our culture, and not just our culture, but in many, any culture, society, the interconnectedness of all of life is not so easily or pervasively acknowledged and acted on. Instead, we find that much of our life is spent in self-preoccupation, pursuits of enhancing the self at the expense of exploiting others and keeping, somehow acquiring and accumulating and keeping for ourselves what we think we need to be happy, to be safe. This action that we take out of an appreciative mind is not just a strong emotional feeling, but it's an action that requires our judgment, our decision, and our intention to move towards sharing our life, our aliveness with others. And it's really an act of faith. It's an inner activity and an act of faith in giving of ourself to others. Dependent on, of course, a sense of having enough in our own life that we can share with others. Being able and willing to take a risk, being courageous enough to take a risk and share to make a commitment without any guarantee that we're going to get anything in return. Really requires that we feel our own potency, that we have faith in the efficacy of our actions, that indeed love, generosity, caring, are effective in this world. Sometimes I think our confidence and our faith is not up to our wishful hope that love and generosity actually work. This act of generating love from a mind that appreciates the qualities in others is really a power which reproduces its own kind. Love is a power which produces more love. When I was practicing metta in Burma in 1988, I had started doing the phrases and uh, started with a benefactor and and was moving through the sequence of uh, people that we 
pervade metta too. And in 1988, there was a political uprising in Burma in the summer. And for about six or eight weeks, the whole country went on strike and was protesting against the military rule and was essentially trying to topple military rule and uh, institute democracy. And there were hundreds of thousands, some days millions of people in the streets of Rangoon protesting. And uh, this was an unheard of thing in Burma. And so I was practicing loving kindness and metta, and I had a lot of sympathy for these people who have lived under a, a rather, a very oppressive a dictator for some years, 30 years. And I had a lot of sympathy for them and a lot of appreciation for what they were trying to do. And then we woke up one morning and the news on the radio was, that was all over. The military had reasserted control, instituted martial law, curfews, and all sorts of things came down. And in about three days, Several thousand people were shot, killed in, in Rangoon. Tens of thousands in the country. And this was a, an affront and a confront to my metta practice. And after a few days, I was still reporting to Sayadaw, and he said, uh, are you sending metta to all beings? Yes. He says, are you sending metta to the generals who took over the country? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe you should send metta to those people also. And I didn't understand why I should bother sending metta to those rather brutal, very brutal people. And I did. After reflecting that what they really want is to be happy. Their blindness and ignorance informs them to act the way they have or were. But underneath that, what they really want is to be happy. And I can wish that for them without approving of the means that they choose to find their happiness. A couple of months after they, or actually about a month after they took over uh, the government, Aung San Suu Kyi, you may know, this Burmese woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize, was very active politically in the country, and they were trying to shut her up and get her out of the country. They didn't want her around, and her husband is English. So the government uh, passed an um, edict that said, all foreigners have to leave the country thinking that if they got rid of him, she'd go with him. And they gave everyone 10 days to leave the country. Well, my visa was a little bit different, and I had a few more days longer than the rest of the people in the country. During that time, I, I was in the midst of practice, the middle of my monkhood, and I wanted to stay in Burma badly, in spite of the conditions. And so I just got this idea in my head that I was going to write a letter to the general who was running, who had been appointed to run the Department of Religious Affairs. And I was going to write a letter telling him who I was, what I wanted, and that he was going to somehow give me permission. So I wrote this letter, had it translated, and I thought I was just going to go downtown 
to the office where the government office was and give him the letter and he would say, sure. You couldn't go downtown. There were too many roadblocks and tanks and, you know, the whole thing that happens when military rule is instituted. But someone in the monastery heard that I wanted, that I'd written this letter. And this person was the dietitian of the dining room. And she liked me. And she came to me and she said, the general that you have written the letter to is my niece's father-in-law. I'll take the letter to him. So she took this letter to him, told him who I was, what I wanted, and he said, okay, he can stay. As brutal as this man was in taking over the country, there still is within him the ability to appreciate humane qualities. Love produces love. In the practice of metta, there are two levels of practice. There's the level of practicing just to generate a benevolent heart in a, in a very general way. And this is called kusala, developing skillful, wholesome mind states. And there's the development of jhana or deep absorptions. In the practice of kusala, we're really wishing for others to be happy and arousing these feelings and intentions of goodwill towards others, softening our own heart, mind, judgments, defensiveness, and recognizing feel the reality of our interconnectedness and stimulating these feelings of appreciation and well-wishing. It's a very informal, very open pervasion, much as we do here in, in the guided sittings and as you might do in, in some of your sittings. It's helpful in beginning the practice of loving-kindness to ask forgiveness from those for whom you have caused distress. Whether it's known or not, how you have done it, it can do a lot to create that softened mind in relation to others, to acknowledge your own limitations of understanding and skill in action, and that indeed our actions might have caused someone harm or danger or fear, and to ask their forgiveness. And to also extend forgiveness to those who we have felt hurt by. To begin the process of reconnection with those that we have shut out of our hearts due to pain. We might also reflect on what is it in our life that prevents us from feeling that connection, that appreciation, that love for others. And the obvious 
mind is the mind of anger, impatience, criticism, cynicism, depression, fear. The opposites, so to speak, of love. Sayadaw used to say that in beginning meditation practice, or beginning metta meditation, we need to reflect on the dangers and the suffering of anger and aversion of any sort. We also need to reflect on the benefit of cultivating patience because love and acceptance and tolerance of others is really patience. And Sayadaw used to say that nothing is accomplished without patience. We can sit and walk and do whatever we do, and if we don't have patience, we're not getting anywhere. Even though love is primarily an attitudinal relationship to all of life, in metta practice we use beings as our object for attention. And metta is one of the, what are called the illimitables, because there are illimitable or innumerable beings, infinite numbers of beings to which we can, to whom we can pervade love and metta to. In the practice of developing metta, we often come across um, some reasonable and some unreasonable approximations of metta, commonly called in this culture, love. And these are familiar experiences, popular expressions of love that we all have, that we all know, and they're not authentic metta. And we should really distinguish the difference between popular versions of love and what metta really is. Because much of our love is really a mixture of genuine benevolence and self-interest. And metta does not have that self-centered concern. It's helpful to recognize these approximations of metta so that when we discover them or run across them in practice, we can recognize them and back off or let go of them as false metta. And the first of these, and and, uh, a group of these, is something like familial love, love within the family. And it may be the protective, uh, nurturing, custodial love of parents to newborns, children. And this is a genuine love, care, concern, responsibility for life and one's growth. The limitation of it is that it's usually only directed to one's own family. We don't feel that same type of sensitive care to everyone. Another familial type of love is the guiding or instructing love 
which parents sometimes have with more or older children that need guiding and instructing. And that type of love is dependent on how good the kids behave. And if the kids uh, meet expectations and respond appropriately, then they get approve, approval. And if they don't, then they get disapproval. So this form of love is a kind of a, uh, a negotiated love. I'll give you this love if you do what I want you to do, if you behave. There's also a third kind of family love, something like brotherly love or sisterly love, in which two people of the same or opposite sex have a very intimate, caring, sharing of their lives, their relationship. Where there is mutual responsibility and respect without sexualization or sensualization of the relationship. But rarely is even this type of care and sharing universal, often limited to a few. More common, possibly, is the ideas we have about romantic love. And there are a couple that I want to mention that are definitely not metta, sometimes parade that way in popular culture. And the first is erotic love, which is really craving for some sort of sexual fusion or intimacy. It's quite obvious that this is not metta or other directed caring, so much as self-centered caring. I recently was sent a Nike um, advertisement, and it was a, 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 high, a glossy fold-out magazine, which was called, it was a, it was a, a, a unit that said, this is a, a falling in love in six acts, a passion play. And there were six pages, six pictures, and six write-ups. Act one is this type of erotic love. It's called Lust, subtitled, I think I love you. Who are you, anyway? <laughs> and the write-up goes like this. Here it is, the big wow, the big gee, the big yes, 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 you've been waiting for. This is where you find something or someone and believe they are better, greater, cuter, wiser, and more wonderful than anything you've ever known. Lust isn't sin, it's a necessity. <laughs> For with lust as our guide, we imagine our bodies moving the way our bodies were meant to move. We can marathons with our feet, lift pounds with our arms, have stars in our eyes, and do a nifty tango. And you think, I have no need for food, I have no need for sleep, I have no needs other than occasionally chewing a breath mint. You are the best thing that's ever happened to me, probably because you haven't happened to me yet. Have any of you had that experience? <laughs> Called it love? It's common. Erotic love. There's a second type of romantic love called euphoric love, or I called it euphoric. And it's the type of love which gets uh, evoked in uh, love songs or love poems or uh, fictions and movies. 
And it's really an idealization of another that we hope is going to provide our sense of fulfillment and happiness. But often, it's nothing more than a precipitous descent into love, what we call falling in love. This is act two of the Nike advertisement called Euphoria, or subtitled, Oh Yippee, You're Mine. And the write-up goes... <laughs> And the write-up goes like this. You feel funny inside. You feel funny outside. You feel you could do anything, and no one would dare laugh at you. This love you will treasure. You will not put it in the basement next to your rowing machine and treadmill. And you will not take this love for granted. And you say, I feel so good. I feel so strong. I feel actually attractive. And I could learn to live with that feeling. Oh. Let us sing and dance. Oh, joy. Oh, rapture. Oh. You ever had that experience and called it love? These are approximations. <laughs> not, not even close approximations. Sorry. But sometimes they come up in our practice, and we'll be pervading metta to someone that we get pretty euphoric about. Let's recognize the difference. There is, though, divine love. There is spiritual, unconditional, selfless love for all humanity. And when it's around, or when it comes around, or when we discover it, when we feel it, we really glimpse an extraordinary dimension of our being, where the feeling of oneness with all others is paramount. And we really know that indeed we are all one, and there can never be any separation where there is no isolation and aloneness. This spiritualized love, or this uh, mystical union with the all, very passionate, without sensualization. Where every act of our life is infused with the recognition of that union. And a love like that is a love that's real, and it won't fade away. It won't fade when someone grows up. It won't fade if your relationship changes. It doesn't depend on the other's mutual, reciprocal response. And it covers the entire universe, it won't withdraw or fade from any place. This is getting close to genuine metta, where we really feel and we open to that 
extraordinary, mystical connection underlying all of our apparent differences. And it's this feeling, it's this recognition that we work with in developing jhana, that we work with in developing deep, concentrated absorptions in that feeling. In practicing jhana, it's a very systematic, very comprehensive progression of developing metta. Again, we start with the self and benefactor and move through any number of individuals onto the groups pervading in all directions, all beings. The goal in developing jhana practice are these deep, tranquil, absorbed states of mind, along with tranquility, patience, and and this mystical union with all. Jhana is defined as absorption achieved through attaining full concentration. And the standard text reads, free from sense desires and improper mental contents, he or she, the yogi, enters and remains in the first jhana, a subtle state of joy and happiness, born of seclusion with applied and sustained attention of the mind. Pretty non-mystical description. But in the practice of metta for development of jhana, we really monitor closely the development of the five jhana, jhanic factors of mind, the five factors of mind which directly oppose and overcome the hindrances, and I've spoken about them before. And we develop the ability to recognize these factors and to attain absorbed states of mind at whatever level we're capable. I'm giving this part of the talk because there's a number of you here who are doing metta practice for developing jhana, and there's some who've done it in previous years. A couple of cautionary notes for the Vipassana yogis. Maybe some, if not most, of what I talk about won't sound like your practice. That's okay. It's not meant to be. In the wide an expansive field of spiritual awakening. Sometimes we practice insight, and at another time we might practice metta or other practices. And the experience and the intention and the motivation and the understanding that we get are very different. So please don't judge your Vipassana practice by these descriptions of metta practice. But hopefully, this will serve as some sort of inspiration for those of you who are practicing jhana and for those of you who aren't to do it later. Because metta really can be a powerful support 
for insight practice, in part because of the concentration and tranquility that's developed, and also the experience of pleasant states of mind and body as a relief (laughs) from so much dukkha. So this first jhana, this first jhana, this subtle state of joy and bliss, after the jhanic factors mature by repeated pervasions and arousing of this understanding of this interconnectedness of all life, there may be a moment of uh, a twist in the mind of some sort slight interruption of your metta practice. And it may be very short initially, and it may not even be recognized. But upon re-experience or development of uh, clarity, we can look to see what the nature of that experience actually is by looking to notice the five jhanic factors And the five jhanic factors, if you don't remember, are the ability to apply the mind or connect the mind to experience, to sustain the mind to experience, joy or delight, happy comfort of mind and body, and single-pointedness of mind. So I want to talk about the experience of each of these in jhana. The connecting of the mind, the continuity of one's intention, and the inclining of the mind towards metta, the feelings, the person, really gathers a lot of momentum where there is a strong recurring connection with metta, with the feeling, without any gaps in continuity. And the body becomes extremely energized, still and direct. The sustaining of the mind, the second factor, jhanic factor, really enhances and brings out great depth of feeling of each of the phrases you're using. And there's a real clear recognition of the subtle nuances of metta, of love. There's also, with the sustaining of the mind, a real ease and clarity in the phrases, in the continuity of the phrases, where there are no eruptions of thought or fantasies or images of any kind. And there's a sense that the mind is just full of love only. Joy or delight, piti, in the first jhana, is really a sense of heightened specialness. There's a real recognition that something pretty fantastic is happening, or has happened. And the mind, the nature of the mind, is really sparkling and luminous. The body can be very enervated. And sometimes it can feel that the body is quite electrified, actually, with a sense of elevated hovering uh, in the mind and the body, the body feeling especially light. And there's real feeling of being in the presence of the divine, where it's the predominant experience. Sukha, or the happy comfort of mind and body, 
is experienced as extreme. Get it? Extreme comfort in the mind and body. Where there is a subtle comfortability and a sense that everything is absolutely okay. Everything is okay. With a supreme sense of well-being. And one might say that we feel energetically at ease. One-pointedness or single-pointedness of mind is experienced in the acknowledgement of utter stillness, where there just isn't anything moving. Often accompanied by a vast silence and a piercing laser-like quality of knowing. When I first started jhana practice, I had expectations of extremely dramatic experiences. But what I've just talked about are really very subtle experiences. And in fact, it's quite easy to miss. Doesn't sound like it. But our minds are really quite rough. And jhana is extremely subtle. But after a few times, after a few experiences, you begin to tune into the subtlety of what this absorbed state, this non-sensual state of mind being really is. Any experience of jhana is followed by a period, more or less, of a post-jhanic bliss, depending on the power and the length of the jhanic attainment, the post-jhanic bliss can last for minutes, hours, days. And that is a rapturous, energetic state in the mind and body, sometimes extremely quiet, extremely still, and extremely vast. And we can still go about our daily activities in a pretty blissed out, rapturous state. And there's knowledge. There is a very clear knowledge of having passed through a very thin membrane in the mind where we just slip through and see this mystical union and slip back out. And that glimpse is extremely powerful and carries with it a flow of momentum of happiness for some time. Now, if you can get it together in that state to keep doing metta, to reconnect again with the beings that you're pervading metta to, to begin again to get the flow of the phrases going, and make a determination in your mind that you'd like to even go further, it may be possible to begin uh, the work of moving towards a deeper level of absorption and 
a second jhana level. This is done not through willful intention. Unlike in Vipassana practice where there's a lot of arousing of our will and determination to just get here and be here and see, in metta practice it doesn't work that way. It's done through the development of what is called aditana. And aditana is the resolution and determination of the mind. And what you do is you make a determination in your mind to attain a deeper level of absorption. And then you don't do anything about it consciously. You let the mind do it. Having set the mind on a course of action, step out of the way, just do your pervasions, let the mind take you. It's very hard for us to trust that that can happen and to believe that somehow we can do it. Not that we can do it, because we don't do it, but that something can do it. And a large part of further development of absorptions in jhana is through developing this power of aditana or determination in the mind. With this aditana, we develop it, we practice, we train the mind to access jhana when we want, for as long as we want, and to come out of it when we want and to develop the ability to remain in jhana for longer and longer periods of time, whatever one is capable of, or whatever one has the patience to try. If, however, one can return to practice and continue with phrases and the pervasions of metta, it soon becomes the momentum of metta takes off and it's no longer necessary to connect or to motivate or to uh, apply the mind to metta. The momentum is so strong that it just carries you along anyway. And again, there may be a sudden shift of consciousness, an opening to another realm of knowing and Again, a heightened sense of clarity, lucidity. And in second jhana, because of the falling away of the application of mind, the the connecting of the mind, the mind becomes much smoother and the experience is much subtle, much more subtle. Now, because the mind is quite concentrated and quite still, the effects of piti or joy and sukha, comfort, become much more pronounced. And in second jhana, there is a whole array of extremely pleasant experiences due to the heightened, due to the concentrated nature of the delight or piti in the mind. And one can experience the exhilarating, ecstatic, uh, rapturous states, often feeling as if one was floating or flying, extreme lightness of mind and body, much like gliding like hawks or eagles or sometimes like riding on a roller coaster, 
swirling, and just a sense that we really could levitate and fly. The quality of metta at this time gets really what I call gushy. It's really uh, sweet, really enthusing out of you. And there's a highly emotive and strong feeling of being in love constantly. Yogis at this stage of practice often become very poetic. (laughs) And their reports are just the most flowery descriptions of loveliness in their mind and body. Or sometimes, because the concentration is so sharp, insight yogis can report their experiences with extremely lucid and descriptive um, understandings of the state of jhana. It's difficult as a teacher to keep a straight face. (laughs) So we don't even try. (laughs) And often yogis report experiences similar to and even far better than psychedelics or designer drug experiences that they may have had before. Again, through training the mind and through determination, the power of determination, working with accessing and extending the state or the ability to stay in second jhana, if one can think that there's anything better, one can try through determination to attain even deeper absorption and try to attain a third level of jhana. Here the mind is getting really subtle, very confident, very still, and the mind is extremely light. Now it's no longer necessary to even sustain the attention. We don't need to apply the mind. We don't even need to sustain it. The momentum is so strong You never slip off. The mind becomes increasingly calm, still, and a vast spaciousness opens. The third jhana is extremely sublime experience. And maybe not surprisingly, the quality of metta is rather matter-of-fact. It's not gushy anymore. It's rather just what it is, matter-of-fact, and the stillness in the mind becomes more predominant. There are, as Sayadaw used to call them, a few air pockets in flight. As you all, any of you who've flown know that occasionally in flying, there's these little dips. Pleasant if you're not afraid of falling out of the air. And in jhana, you're not. Third jhana. Extremely subtle, extremely still, 
spacious. However, there is still enough excitement and ecstatic qualities due to the piti present that if one can continue to reconnect with the phrases or not even phrases so much at this point, but if one can just keep their mind inclined towards metta. It's like keeping it inclined toward metta instead of somewhere else. Then one can, with determination, with resolve, aim for fourth jhana. Fourth jhana comes about when the rapturous effects of piti, of the joy, are no longer present. When they've mellowed out and smoothed out, no longer arise, and then the effects of sukha, or the happy comfort of mind and body, become the focus for one's attention, or become the predominant experience in fourth jhana. Here, in fourth jhana, extreme comfort of mind and body, without joy, without delight, without excitement or ecstasy, sublimely subtle pleasantness, with an extraordinary feeling of confidence and well-being. No quality of being high or light. In fact, there's a real stability and groundedness due to the power of equanimity, concentration, and tranquility. The mind is extremely or extensively spacious, exquisitely calm and still, pervasively silent, without any boundaries to the body, with no distinctive physical experience, approximately no experience of the body at all. The quality of metta here, very clear, very precise, subtle consciousness, where with the mere intention or inclination of the mind to metta, the mind goes. And some even experience the absorption in love at this degree of concentration as really no feeling of loveness at all. The equanimity being so strong, nearly obscuring the feeling of love. There's no further uh, jhanas for metta beyond this. This is reported to be the height or the most subtle and the highest form of bliss possible in a human body, human mind. Because to go beyond that would be to leave that happy comfort of mind and body and enter a state of pure equanimity in which there cannot be that biased attitude of love and care for someone, for anyone, for any being. And so to progress further beyond fourth jhana, one has to leave metta and take up another practice of equanimity. So you can see from some of the descriptions 
the effect of practicing metta, whether one attains jhana or not, are tremendous love and appreciation, where the pool of love out of which one lives is extensive, pervasive. And the feeling of being connected to others through this vulnerable openness is in safety, where we really feel safe in our vulnerability of openness to others. Without any feeling of alienation or aloneness and a recognition of the unity of all beings, the sense of boundaries being dissolved becomes apparent as one practices at the jhana level. And not only the physical boundaries of the body become very porous or expansive or even thin and non-existent, but the boundaries between beings become very porous and the mind floats freely amongst all humans, all beings seen or unseen, all species. So that there's really no distinction in the ability to love and appreciate humans that you know or don't know, animals that you know or don't know, and beings in any realm. There's also a dissolution of the boundaries of time, where past and future become present. Time distortions are extensive. Hours can pass in a flash. And space, too, loses its boundaries, where the mind can reach any corner of the universe instantly. The empathic connection we have with ourselves and others extends to every experience we have, whether it's a relationship to an animate or an inanimate thing. Love, appreciation, tranquility, lightness, happiness, a lot of joy, comfort, and equanimity. Powerful motivation for practicing metta and good support for practicing insight. So I would encourage you all to turn on your love light. Leave it on. So maybe we should sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.